Good morning. Thank you, Tom and Josh. Uh, I'm interested in one of them chimichurras out there. They look pretty cool. It's a fire pit. Ch- what is that, a food or something? Is that a food? Chimichangas. I'm interested in those too. And whatever those other things are called out there. All right, it's all good. So, uh, uh, welcome, Paula. Say hello to Paula. Paula's going to talk to us for just a few moments, kind of as a follow-up to last week's message. I got a number of people who made comments to me. If you haven't heard last week's message, you can go on the uh, trygrace.org website and listen to it. We talk about evangelism. We talk about missions and how this is Jesus Christ's big mission is about salvation. But if we're trying to be an evangelist when we don't have the gift of evangelists, we might be pushing people farther away from Jesus. And we talked about last week, um, and my wife who has the gift of evangelism, wanted to make that really clear that we're all involved in missions. We're all involved in missions, but we're involved, we're involved in that through our gifts, through the gift God has given us. And so Paula, I knew there's a lot of stuff going on at her place of work, and God is using the gift, not the gift of evangelism, which Paula will tell you she does not have, but she has another gift, and God is using it in special ways, and I wanted her to share that. So please, I'll give you your notes right there. How about another welcome for Paula? Hi, everybody. So I have worked uh, for Crate and Barrel um, for the past 10 years, and really the past four, I've been the Mid-Atlantic area trainer, and I've had the opportunity to recruit, hire, train, develop, and then love on uh, people from the Philadelphia area all the way down to North Carolina. I love my job. I love it. And I have been amazed at what a ministry I've been able to have that's even been more intense than when I was an actual youth minister. As John said, I do not. I do not have the gift of evangelism, which is kind of funny since I was in the ministry and I'm also a preacher's kid, but I don't have evangelism as a gift. What I do have, I feel, are the gifts of mercy, compassion, encouragement, and if there is a gift called this, I have the gift of of being real. I don't shy away from who I am, but I also don't force things on people either. Everyone at Crate knows that I go to Grace. They know that Grace is the church for people who don't go to church. They know that I play in the band. They know that I lead a Bible study at home, and they also... No, I go on mission trips. Some of them have even uh, financially supported my trips. Uh, A couple of years ago, we raised shoes here at Grace for Haiti. And because they know it's important to me, because of the relationships I've built at Crate, I was able to bring 250 pairs of shoes from people who don't even come to our church because they knew it was important to me. But the other thing that they know I do is pray. In the past 10 years, I've been asked to pray on a regular basis from associates who are from so many different faiths, so many different backgrounds. Just this past week, I had someone who actually said, can you P-R-A-Y for me? I'm like, do you mean pray? And she's like, no, I can't say it, just P-R-A-Y for me. I was like, oh, okay, that's a new one for me. <laughs> but um, just this past fall, I was asked to step out of my position as trainer and become the acting store manager at Tyson's Corner to help my friend Catherine, who needed to take a medical leave because her husband, Paul, has a very rare form of cancer. And as much as store manager was my least favorite position at Crate and Barrel, I knew I needed to go. And it was only really through January. I could do that. 
Catherine needed me, and the staff, who I knew very well, needed me as well. At the end of January, my time was extended through April. Catherine's husband now needed a bone marrow transplant. She asked me to pray for a donor, knowing that sometimes it takes so long to find one. They don't believe, but they ask for prayer. Paul ended up with three donors in his family, including his father. And Catherine told me she knew it was God. Had I not been asked to stay longer, I would not have been in the store when yet someone else in management, a very dear friend of mine, two Fridays ago, was diagnosed with aggressive and invasive breast cancer. Again, Jen and her family are not believers, just like the majority of people I work with. All she does now is ask for prayer. And guess what? Hopefully I won't cry here. After asking my Bible study girls, my Haiti trip girls, sorry, Haiti trip boys, I didn't include you on the email, my fault. Um, Asking um, my parents, asking the church staff, They discovered just Friday that after they had said this was going to be almost a death sentence, that her cancer is now localized, and she's going to be fine after her treatment. I have had numerous people in the company tell me that I was put in Tyson's for a purpose, to be a positive, encouraging, and compassionate leader. I have somewhat joked that I really should have a sign outside my office door saying therapist available because the number of people who come to my office that just want to talk and not about business. I have been told that nobody else could have helped in the way I have, but it wasn't me. I've only been real. I've relied on God and all my church friends to give me strength, and I've just tried to use the gifts that he's given me. My ministry at Crate is not to tell people they need God. My ministry at Crate is to support, encourage, and pray for them. I may never know the extent of God's influence that he has had. All I can do is be the person that he made me to be and to use the gifts that he put inside me just to make a difference. Thanks. Why don't we just stay here and have a prayer? Thank you, Paul. Every single one of us has a ministry, and it's up to us whether or not we're going to step into that. And we don't need to feel pressured to pick up a gift and try to minister with a gift that we don't have. But when we just simply surrender to God and say, okay, what is my gift? Now we identify the gift. Now, God, I give this gift to you. Would you use it as you wish? Some very special things happen. So... Um, Thank you so much, Paula, for sharing that. We're going to talk about Acts 19. Acts chapter 19 is quite a chapter. If uh, you're not on the weekend broadcast, I encourage you to pull out your Connect card and check that so you can see the chapters we're coming up on and uh, hopefully be able to uh, read before we actually get here on Sundays the different uh, chapters that we're going through or whatever we're studying for that week. Because it would be helpful to give you some background information as you kind of hit the ground running. We're talking about supernatural power this morning. This is a, a chapter with tremendous amount of supernatural things taking place. We see right in the beginning that the Holy Spirit like pours down on these people in this city of Ephesus. Pours down in an amazing way and people start praising God in languages they do not even know. Extraordinary, even according to the Bible. 
The Bible talks about miracles, but in Acts 19, it says extraordinary miracles take place. Think about that. Even out of the ordinary for the Bible, they're incredible. There's a failed exorcism, and there's a gigantic book burning. Now, supernatural power. Here's the thing that's so interesting here, everybody. There is a very strong movement in churches in the United States of America, a very strong movement, and it's been going on for quite some time, to remove everything out of the Bible that smacks of being supernatural. You'll say, that doesn't make sense. This is within the church. This is within the church. It doesn't make sense. We need to pull that out. And so you'll see that uh, some, you know, some churches or leaders or books or whatever, you'll read about this. So it's like nothing supernatural at all can take place. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in a book where he was writing specifically about Satan and demons. He wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional book. But he writes right in the preface something that's very important. He says, for those people, now he's talking about Satan and demons, all right? And, you know, we have in America about 100% people, almost 100% believe in God, but only 50% of the people in America believe in Satan. And so he says this, and I know he's talking about Satan and demons, but let's, let's, if you will, let's incorporate miracles and supernatural things into it. He says, we tend to go one of two directions. Either we deny the total existence of the supernatural, or we completely obsess about it. And then he says, talking about Satan, he says, Satan is very pleased by either one of those responses. I think it's very good to note. There has to be a, a, a balance here. Has to be a balance. It's interesting uh, that a book has just been written called Generation Hex, H E X, Hex. And it says this the fastest growing religion in the United States of America, venture a guess. What do you think it is? The fastest growing religion in the United States of America. Anybody? Scientology? Buddhism? Somebody said Wicca. Wicca is it. According to this new book, Generation Hex, the fastest growing religion in the United States of America is Wicca, doubling uh, their membership every 30 months. Wicca is all about the supernatural. It's about spells and incantations, which, which we'll see here in the city of Ephesus. That's what they were really into. They said something interesting. The author of the book said something very interesting. It's talking about people who are being drawn to Wicca. They said this, quote, people want a supernatural experience. So what I found so fascinating is here we've got major church leaders saying, no, supernatural, that's out. And you have a whole bit fast over here saying, we want the supernatural. No supernatural because that doesn't make sense to us. We have to eliminate that, just completely cut it out of the Bible. And they're cutting whole sections out of the Bible. Like Acts 19, we've a major problem. And over here on the other side, people saying, you know what? We really want to experience the supernatural. What's that all about? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us as we go through this fascinating chapter this morning and help us to understand what it is that we can learn from this. What does it have to do with us? In Christ's name, amen. Got a couple of verses of scripture there for you on your outline, or they're behind me on the screen, I'm sure, that talk about living in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, or do not hold back the work of the Holy Spirit. What I'd like to do is get four things, or like four little vignettes, four little pictures that we see in Acts 19, and this should go boom, 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 boom. And it leads up to how there was such a, to me, a supernatural outpouring uh, that we see here in this chapter in the book of Exodus. And the first thing is this, 
if you'll write this in. The first group of people is they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. Let's just read it. Acts 19, verses 1 to 7 says this. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Well, John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one that was coming after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There are about 12 men and all. So they knew John's baptism. What is John's? Well, Paul tells us what John's baptism is. It's a baptism of repentance. So John the Baptist was a person. John the Baptist almost was issuing divine threats. John the Baptist was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And there are a number of people here that come and tell me, you know, I love hellfire and brimstone preaching. So if you love hellfire and brimstone preaching, John was your guy. Because he's the guy that would come along and say, you know, basically turn or burn. You better make a, he says, you better make a highway, big highway in your life for God, or you are in major trouble. He just lit people up. He was a rough kind of cob of a guy, you know. We're told that he would eat locusts, just, just grab them by the handful and eat locusts alive and everything. And he wore this leather, all this kind of stuff. He was a rough guy. You understand what I'm trying to say? And so he didn't play around. A tough character. Well, his baptism was a baptism. His baptism was this. I have to turn away from everything that I think is making me a bad person in order for me to be a good person. And so Paul comes along and says, you know what? That's, that's fine. That's great. But that's not going to make you right with God. Isn't it interesting to note this? Uh, George Barna, who is this major researcher, does a lot of surveys, particularly in the Christian community. There's a lot of surveys. He asks people, what do you think the number one way is that you can be right with God, that you can grow spiritually or be more righteous with God? What is the number one thing you can do? And you know what the number one response to that was? People said, I feel for me, in order for me to really be right with God, me be righteous with God, that I just need to try harder to obey the rules. I just need to try harder to obey the rules. And what fascinates me here, everybody, is right at the foundation of this outpouring of the supernatural, right? There is this message of grace that comes through, through the message of grace. Think about this. If there is something that any of us in this room can do by our own human efforts, our own performance, by following the rules that makes us more right with God, don't we have to begin to feel superior towards those people who aren't doing those things that we're doing? Do you, you follow me? Don't we have to? Like if I'm doing this and this makes me right with God and somebody, person X over here is not doing those things that I feel are making me right with God, they're not doing it. Don't I have to begin to feel a little bit arrogant and proud and superior to that person? Yes, we do. That is why grace is so brilliant. Almost 100% of the people in America believe in God and they believe in heaven and almost 100% say they deserve to go there. It's kind of like people who are in the hospital. They surveyed, insurance companies surveyed people who are in the hospital because they were in an automobile accident that they caused. They said, what kind of driver do you think I am? They said, I'm an excellent driver. It's who we are. We're drawn to human effort. We're drawn to performance. We're drawn to, there must be something about me that deserves to be right with God. And so at the very core of it, God says, no, 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 no. You pick the person 
who you think is the least deserving of God's love and entrance into heaven, and you're on the exact same level as they are. There's nothing you can do. Whatever the gap you feel exists in your life, there's nothing you can do. It's all about grace. And when they allowed that grace to really seep into them and they understood that, that, everybody, was the foundation. I, I, I truly believe, and we can study and we can learn and we can talk about grace and we can give all kinds of illustrations to it, but understanding the grace of God is something we have to pray, God, help me to understand what grace really is because I'm constantly drawn to human effort. So these people, they didn't know Jesus, but that got taken care of. Now let's move to the next little story here that we're given right on its heels, and it's verses 8 to 10. It's a little short snippet. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily. Notice this in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. They went they went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Why is that so fascinating? Here's why it's fascinating. First of all, this guy's named the Tyrannus Lecture Hall. Uh, it, it actually, in the, in, in the original language, that word means tyrant. This was the tyrant's lecture hall. So what, what, we, what we speculate is, is that in that town that was known for some education, in that town where people being educated, there was a teacher, and everybody nicknamed him a tyrant. And this was where he lectured. And so what happened is in, in the town, everybody, in Ephesus, everything would shut down between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Everybody would go home and take a nap. This was siesta time. So you would work in the morning, and at 11 o'clock, you'd go home, you'd eat, you'd go to sleep, you'd get back out, you'd go back to work at 4 o'clock, all right? That was, they was said in Ephesus that there were more people sleeping at 1 o'clock in the afternoon than at 1 a.m. in the morning. This was their routine. Now, here's the thing. They wanted to know more about Jesus Christ. They wanted to know so much about Jesus Christ that they were willing to give up sleep. They were willing to give up sleep to learn more about Jesus Christ. They were willing to sacrifice their nap time, their sleep time, and to break their routine because they had such a hunger for Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see is the foundation is grace. And the next thing is they had this massive hunger to know more about Jesus Christ. Now, how do we get that hunger? I mean, does it just fall on us? How does it get? Well, it's very practical, everybody. We get hungry when we are going and growing. Write that down. We are going and growing. We get hungry. It's very practical. We all know this. So when we're going, when we're exercising, when we're busy, it builds up a hunger and an appetite within us. We're getting ready for the Olympics, right? Olympics is the summer. Am I correct? Yes, it is. Where is it? London? It's in London. All right, uh, Michael Phelps, did anybody read after the last Olympics what statement he made about how many calories he eats a day? Anybody can remember the number that he said? 12,000 calories. Now, can you imagine a 12,000 calorie diet? And he says, he says in the, and, and when he said that, he says, I have a hard time keeping weight on. I have a hard time keeping weight off. He has a hard time keeping weight on at 12,000 calories. Why? Because he says, I exercise so much. I have a voracious appetite because I'm exercising and working and I'm going and going and going. I have this huge, huge need to eat food. And so he's just, he's guy's like a feeding machine. He's exercising. All right, now, what are you doing for Jesus? If, 
if you are serving Jesus Christ in some way, if you're busy for Jesus, you will gain an appetite for Jesus Christ. You'll want to know more about Jesus Christ. You'll want to learn more. If you're not doing anything, there's a strong chance, a very strong chance, just like, hey, let somebody else do it, or I don't have to, whatever. Two most popular things is, I don't have time to do anything for Jesus, or I have done my time. Those are the two most popular things I have, I have heard, all my, heard all my life in the church. I don't have time, or I've done my time. It's time for somebody else to do it. And what happens is, is we just don't have, a, we don't have an appetite anymore, because it totally shrinks. Now, the second one is, this first one, going, when you're actually exercising, do something. So you want to you wanna enlarge your appetite to learn more, just like they did here? then you have to begin to do something for Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing, growing. Going and growing. Growing. Have you ever seen a teenage boy who is growing eat? Ever seen that? It's a little scary. Massive volumes of food. And teenage boys... I mean, that's an exciting thing. For, I mean, they, 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 they celebrate it. They get together, and they have these huge feasts, and they celebrate it, and they keep records. I remember uh, when I was growing up, there was a guy. His name was Jackie McCahill. And Jackie, we went over here to Bailey's Crossroads, and there was a Chesapeake Bay Seafood House. Anybody remember Chesapeake Bay Seafood House? So they had this deal. They had this deal. Yeah, oh, yeah. See, ladies, ladies, you're sitting here saying, man, this is so stupid. And the guy's inside like, yeah, man, this is cool, yeah. <laughs> right? And so here's, here's this thing. How many times, because you, you paid a certain amount of money, and the waiter would keep bringing you uh, seafood as much as you could eat. He set a record. He sent the waiter back 22 times. 22 times. Every guy in this room is smiling on the inside around saying, man, that is awesome. I think Rob Severn over here told me one time he ate three dozen Krispy Kreme donuts and drank a gallon of milk, right? And we all, is that awesome? That's awesome, right? Give him a hand. That's, that's so that's, Right. When we're growing, when we're, when we're growing, right, we have this huge appetite. We're growing. The problem is for some of us is we think we're still growing and we're not, and we still keep the appetite. But that's a whole other uh, message for Bod for God when that comes up with Chris Wilcox, which we're looking forward to. But when, when we, we are growing, when we're learning, the same thing is true when we're learning. When we start learning about Jesus Christ, it fuels our appetite. We have a stronger appetite. When we sign up for a Bible study, we start digging in and we think about how can I apply God's... When we start trying to figure out what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and start using our minds, it fuels our appetite to want to know more. Same thing happens in a marriage, doesn't it? It's thinking about this past week in a marriage. You know, in an early stage of marriage, you know, you, couples will say to each other or a guy will say to a husband to a wife, hey, baby, just, just talk to me. Tell me everything about... I just want to learn, man, like... I just, my ears, like big funnels, just pour in. I just want to know everything about you. I, I've heard guys say this, and they'll talk on the phone for hours, and they'll listen, all this kind of stuff like this. And then what happens after a while? It's like, okay, baby, I don't want to hear anymore. <laughs> we get to this stage. We get to this stage. Where I've learned it all. There's nothing else to learn. And what happens when we get to that stage? I'll tell you exactly what happens when we get to that stage. When we, when we say, you know what, we're not, we don't have a voracious appetite to learn anything else about our, our spouse or so, whatever, right? That marriage goes dead. It becomes boring and stale, and it's over. We have to continuously want to learn. Same thing with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Where are you with your appetite to learn? Hmm? Would you be willing to sacrifice sleep 
to study the Bible. This is what they did. They sacrificed sleep. They gave up their nap. What, well, you know what's fascinating is if any of everybody's, anybody's ever read the book of Revelation, you know at the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's these seven churches, and each one of them receives a letter. And the first one to receive this letter from God is the church of Ephesus, Acts 19. And God says, you know what? I'm really uh, happy and pleased with you, and you're doing great work. i got one problem with you, though. You have forsaken your first love. And he says, I want you to go back and start doing the things that you did at first, and everything's going to solve itself. If you begin to do things, what, what did they do at first? They had a voracious appetite to learn more and more about Jesus Christ. This is what we want to do. That's the second little vignette. Here's the third vignette that leads toward all this supernatural power. Let's read it. Um, well, first of all, there's this little thing that happens here in verses 11 and 12, and then we'll get to the next one. So it says this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Whoa, this is extraordinary. So what are these handkerchiefs and aprons? What was Paul? Paul was a tent maker. He was a leather worker. He worked with leather. You know what these handkerchiefs were? They were the bandanas that he put around his head to keep the sweat off of him. And the, the apron was his tool belt. And people were taking that. It, it's reminiscent in Acts chapter 5. We're told that Peter's shadow would fall on people as he was walking. His shadow and people were being healed. And the Bible says this is extraordinary. This is out of the, this is not ordinary stuff. Supernatural things are going on. And we get this little two-verse deal in here about all this supernatural power. Now let's continue on. Now the next section, verses 13 to 16, is a group of people who wished they had knew Jesus. They wished they had knew Jesus very, very badly. This is what it says about them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Now, first thing you need to know is this. These seven guys, these seven sons of this Jewish high priest named Sceva, we have no record of any Jewish high priest by the name of Sceva. So these guys, we feel, are imposters right from the get-go. They're trying to come in. They're trying to be posers, trying to say, hey, you know, we're all that. And, you know, people who could do this kind of stuff back in those days, particularly in Ephesus, were celebrated. They wanted to be the talk of the town. They wanted to be the big men on campus. So they came in and said, okay, you know, we're, we're sons of Sceva, this Jewish high priest. Ephesus didn't know anything about, you know, who is a Jewish high. They didn't know anything. So they okay, well, you must be somebody important. And they came in, and they want to invoke the name of Jesus as if it was some kind of toy. And it went off in their hand like a hand grenade. So look what happens. This is actually one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. That's kind of sick of me. I know that. But that's all right. So look what happens. There's a seven scums, a Jewish high priest were doing this. And one day, the, one day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Uh, you know, I was thinking, reading this past week, who, but Jesus I know, and I've heard about Paul, but who are you? I think this is one of the cases, because these are demons speaking. I think there's a couple words left out here, possibly. I think they said something even stronger. But anyway, who are you? Then, then the man who had the evil spirit, check this out, jumped on them, over, there's seven, one against seven, overpowers them and gave them such a beating. These guys who were all into, hey, we're a big man on campus, gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house 
naked and bleeding. For a Jewish man to run down the middle of a street naked was extraordinarily humiliating. So these guys run. So look what, look what these demons say. They say, there's two different Greek words here used. It says, we know Jesus. That's what the demon says. We know Jesus. The Greek word is, is we personally know Jesus Christ. We per- That's what the demons said to them. We personally know Jesus Christ. And then a different Greek word is for, used for the next no. We have heard about somebody by the name of Paul. He's making rumblings. All the demons are talking about him, but we haven't met him ourselves. But we have met Jesus Christ, and we know exactly who he is. But we have no idea who you are. And if maybe you really knew Jesus Christ, there's nothing we can do about it, but we're going to rise up, and we're going to beat the snot out of you. And was exactly what they wished they knew who Jesus Christ was. Now, let's get to the last vignette. So the last one is found in verses 17 to 20. These people here, they knew Jesus. There is no doubt about it. Their lives were completely and radically changed. Verses 17 to 20. So when this became known, talking about the thing with the seven sons of Sceva, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of these scrolls, all these books of incantations and spells and on and on it goes. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. All right. This is a radical thing that takes place here. 50,000 drachmas. One drachma is one day's wage. So this is 50,000 days worth of wages or 137 years worth of wages all in one day that that just goes up in smoke. And in D.C. money, this is about $10 million. They brought $10 million, and they said, because of Jesus Christ, because of the fact that I've accepted his grace in my life and I'm learning more and more about Jesus Christ, I'm going to take $10 million, and I'm just going to burn it. I'm not going to try to sell it. I'm not going to go on eBay and try to get money for it, for all my books. I'm not going to do that. I think because of Jesus Christ, I am going to simply burn the books and get completely rid of all this stuff. This is something that is outright radical. These people had truly met Jesus Christ. There are two very interesting verses in the Bible that Jesus says both of them. I put them on your outline. Here's what it says. Matthew 10, 34. Think about this. Maybe some of you have read this before and thought, what in the world does this mean? Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying, I've come to, you know, bring bloodshed or, you know, you're supposed to pick up a sword. We're all supposed to be soldiers. What in the world is he trying to say? You know what simply Jesus Christ is saying to us? I have come not to just make everything business as usual, what I've come to do is radically change and disrupt your life. Your life will no longer be the same when you have met me. When you have truly received the grace and you're growing in a knowledge of me, your life cannot be the same. And you see that in Ephesus. They make a radical change because these people had truly met Jesus Christ. There's another one. Matthew eleven twelve. Jesus Christ says this. He says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Ah, and the violent take it by force. What in the world does that mean? It suffers violent and the violent take it 
take it by force. What he's saying this is all the violence that Jesus Christ went through, all the violence on the cross, all the violence of the prophets in the past that had been martyred, that had been beaten. He said, do you think for a second with all of that violence that somehow you're just going to have life as usual, that you can just kind of had me into your life without it completely radically changing and disrupting your life. Jesus Christ, what he's trying to say to us is not like an add-on in our life. It's not business as usual. It's kind of, oh, what'd you do today? Oh, I accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Oh, that's great, man. I'm glad to hear it. No, there should be some kind of sign that there's a radical change in your life because you've met Jesus Christ. Look, Jesus Christ is not like adding a puppy to your house, Right? I have a dog living in my home. I don't want that dog in my home. And I make a big deal of it and I complain about the dog all the time because I don't like the dog. But the reality is, everybody, the dog hasn't made a radical change in my life. I mean, I mean, as much as I complain about the dog, the dog is pretty whatever, you know. It's, not a, it's, it's an inconvenient, which I tell my wife all the time, it's kind of inconvenient, but it's not a radical change. Listen, When we truly meet Jesus Christ, it totally disrupts our lives. It changes our thoughts, our conversations, our values, when we truly meet Jesus Christ. And if that hasn't changed, if if you haven't had a rat, if somebody can't, if somebody's around you say, whoa, man, you've had a radical change in your life, then have you really met Jesus Christ? Look, Jesus Christ in the scriptures is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Having Jesus Christ in your life is not like having a puppy in your house. It's like having a wild, untamed lion running through your home. What would that be like? Would your house ever be the same? It would not be the same. It would be radically changed. And when somebody really meets Jesus Christ, their life is completely disrupted and they're radically changed. And this is what happens here in Ephesus. Do you ever notice in the scriptures when Jesus is talking, he never is asking people to do something? He's commanding them to do something. So he says in Matthew 28, this famous verse at the end of the book of Matthew, he says, go, exclamation point. He didn't say, look, I'd like you to consider, disciples, I'd like you to consider, I'd like you to think, I'd like you to reflect on this, of possibly going and telling people about me and baptizing them. He says, no, go. And when he says in Acts chapter 1, he doesn't say, hey, I'd like you to think about staying here in Jerusalem for a while, wait for the Holy Spirit to pour, and then then maybe then, then going out and spreading the word. He says, stay. He makes commands. And my question, simple question this morning to you is this. What is Jesus Christ commanding you to do? Because when we truly meet Jesus Christ, it involves a radical change. Not a puppy dog change. It involves a lion, an untamed lion. What is Jesus Christ commanding you to do? And when we begin to listen to that, that is the basis for the supernatural, the grace of God, the learning about Jesus Christ and the radical is the basis to begin to see the super- focusing on super. Oh, I want supernatural. That's not going to make it happen. That's not- what happens here in Ephesus is there's an outpouring of the supernatural because of the grace, because of the knowledge and because I am going, I am willing to say you are my Lord. Command me. What would you have me to do for some of us this morning? What is God commanding you to do for some of us in this room? God is saying, you know what? It's time. It's time for you to get serious about your relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, you've been dabbling around the edge of the world, but it's time to get serious. For some of us, it's time to sign up for a Bible study. It's time to really start learning. I hear about these Bible studies. I thought about doing it one time, but it's time to sign up. For some of us, it's time to go on a mission trip. 
So we talked, Paula talked a little bit about, you know, Haiti. She mentioned Haiti a minute ago, and Josh and Tom were up here. Some of us, it's time to sign up to go on a mission trip, either to travel far or to do something right here uh, locally. For some of us, it's time for us, the radical thing is for us to forgive somebody. We've grown very bitter about something, and it's time to get really radical and to forgive that person. For some of us, we need to go get some counseling. We need to find a good wise, smart counselor because our lives are having a serious mess. There's a problem and we need to break down and do something radical like going to get some help and talking to a counselor and making some changes in our lives. Some of us this morning, the radical thing is we say, you know, I see the prayer team over there all the time and I'm never going to visit them and I know God wants me to visit them and this morning the radical thing is to go over and visit them and get some prayer because this is how God moves in our lives. For some of us, the radical thing is to start tithing. How about that one? Total silence. But some of us. The radical thing is to sign up for a volunteer team or to quit listening to gossip. So quit. You know, what is the radical thing that God is calling you to do this morning? It is the basis for the supernatural outpouring we see in Ephesus. They were willing to be radically changed. God did something radical in my life, and it happened over 20 years ago. I said last week, I have no gift for music you know this i have no gift for music. i don't even like music like i'll stand over here sometimes and maybe sing if i think somebody's looking at me but other than that i'm just sitting there kind of silent i'm not when i think about having a good time music is never in the i'm I just not it doesn't move me which is so weird because the rest of my family is deeply moved by music and here i am the odd duck out which is normally the case so but i had nothing for music and over 20 years ago god's it was all, it was, it felt like a lot like a command. I was serving on staff at a very small church. I was the music leader. Unplanned, unwanted. Didn't want to do it. Now, I need to tell you something else in full disclosure. The group of people, it's a very small church, but the group of people that I were leading were um, in this church, a number of them, not all of them, many of them, were obnoxious self-righteous, um, misguided biblically. I could not stand them, and they could not stand me. And I felt like God, you know, this, do them. I know nothing about, I don't want to know anything about music. I don't enjoy music. I don't even sing in church. Lead the music. So Krista plays the piano, and I stand up, and I lead. And I really got to thinking about that this past week. I cannot explain this. I led music for two years. God fell supernaturally over and over and over again on Sundays. No, it was, it was unusual. I'd never felt anything like that before. You know, we would have times where the whole service would stop. Like we would do our normal three songs, four songs, just like we do here. We'd have times where we would actually stop. And there would be like an hour of worship. And the presence of God was palpable. This is incredible. Doing, it was a radical thing. I knew I couldn't sing. I was embarrassed to sing. God said, do this. And I did, and I could feel, feel God with me, helping me in an amazing way. We had friends i had friends that were older that were visiting they were from out of town and they had teenage kids they came to a service you know an amazing thing even the people in that church 
who couldn't stand me and I couldn't stand them for different reasons. Even them, they would come to me as much as I know they hate it. And they say, my goodness, God poured out his spirit today in this music service. And I know it killed them to say it because I was leading it. But they couldn't. It was so undeniable. So I had these friends coming to town. They had these teenage kids. And the kids came up to me. And the parents came up, the kids, all of them together. And they're like, oh, my goodness. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know I could do it either. Uh, the kids looked at me straight face, and they said, you look and you sound just like Elvis Presley. <laughs> Listen, if that's not divine intervention, if, not, if, if God, you understand what I'm saying? If God, you can't tell me God wasn't in, that somehow have some involvement in that, right? Elvis Presley showed up and was singing beside me, and they heard him singing. What is God calling you to do? I want to tell you one last thing. I'm done. I have a dream in my heart. I have a dream in my heart. I could see it. It's been with me for years. To see a supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I would love to see people who are suffering injustice. I would love to see the injustice get crushed by the sovereign and powerful hand of God. I would love to see hurting people set free. I would love to see people who are sick, physically sick, they're ill, they're suffering. I would love to see them miraculously healed. We got an email this past week from somebody here at Grace and their sister-in-law diagnosed with aggressive cancer, had a double mastectomy and the cancer spread to their brain. It just hit me. I said, oh God just would love, this person doesn't live anywhere, I just love to see them healed. It is not going to happen because we jump up and down and say, Almighty God, please come down in supernatural power. What we see is here is something for us to learn from the church in, the, in, in, in Ephesus. And that is, is to focus on the grace of God. Say, God, give me understanding of your grace. That's the foundation. And I want to hunger and learn more about you. And I'm willing to be radically changed. And when they did those things, God showed up in an extraordinary way. And that really grabs my attention. And I hope it will grab yours. And I just pray that one day, maybe, maybe God would show up in our midst in a similar fashion. And that's a day I'll say. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father. I thank you, God, for your word. I thank you, Lord, that that you want to do amazing things in our lives. God, help us to truly grasp your grace. Help us to just have this deep hunger for you. For those of us here this morning that we're just like on the edge of it, maybe I might respond to your command. Help us, God, to finally cross the line this morning and say, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to respond. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit. God, I pray that you would set captives free. I pray that you would lift up people that have been beaten down. I pray for people this morning. We know them all across. All of us know so many people that are physically hurting. God, just begin to touch, encourage, and heal in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. In your name, amen.